thanks everyone for coming. I'm Jen Tarr from the Methodology Institute at the London School of Economics. I'm a lecturer here. Um, and it's my great pleasure today to be chair of this session on the arts of illness. Um, we have today three speakers, and each of them will be speaking for about 15 minutes. And then we'll have a little bit of a discussion before turning it over to you for questions. So we'll begin with Brian Dillon, who is a writer and art critic. Um, he's recently published a book, Tormented Hope, Nine Hypochondriac Lives, which he'll be speaking about today. Um, the book was shortlisted for the Wellcome Trust uh, Book Prize, and he's also won a number of other awards, including the Irish Book Award for Nonfiction for his first book, um, and he's the UK editor of Cabinet Magazine, an arts and culture magazine. Thank you very much. Um, am I doing this over here? Yeah. Okay. And can I just assume that um, PowerPoint is all? It should be set up. <coughs> um, with this, right? Okay. Ah, there he is. <laughs> My mascot for the next 15 minutes. Um, if you don't know this image, it's from um, around 1860, and it's by the great French artist uh, Daumier, and it's entitled as you see at the bottom, Le Malade Imaginaire. Uh, it's not, in fact, an illustration to Moliere's great play of the same name, um, although Daumier did a number of illustrations to, to that play. So it, it comes out of a series, really, of, of I guess, kind of um, modern and more particularly modern Parisian types, character types, um, but also, uh, in a way, med medical aesthetic types um, in, the, in the middle of the 19th century. And he, um, as some of you may know, is, is the cover of the UK edition uh, of the book. He'll come back later on for various reasons. So my book um, is really a sort of uh, a set of biographical essays, nine biographical essays, uh, about people who I am calling um, hypochondriacs. And as you'll see in a moment, uh, the definition of that term, the way that I want to think about that term, uh, is complicated um, and doesn't really reduce, doesn't really... Um, come down to the way that... Am I feeding back slightly? Slightly. Slightly further away? Okay. Doesn't, doesn't exactly accord um, with the way that we use that term today. And one of the things that I want to, to spend a little bit of time uh, doing today um, is explaining the various other meanings, the great variety of meanings uh, that that term has had, and what a, what a history of hypochondria might tell us First of all, about the history of our attitudes to our bodies and, and to disease. Secondly, about the relationship between illness and aesthetic experience. And thirdly, maybe something um, about uh, how those things impinge on us today and what it might mean um, to rethink uh, that term hypochondria um, in the contemporary world. So we start, and I'm going to weave a little bit in and out of the book, so some of the, some of the people in the book will, will appear and disappear as we go. Um, I want to start in, in 1623 with Robert Burton's fantastic book, The Anatomy of Melancholy. Uh, this is the frontispiece to The Anatomy of Melancholy. If you know the book, you'll know um, that Burton's book is, as it were, a short, it's not a very short history. It starts off considerably shorter than it ended up in the something like 8th or ninth edition uh, published before Burton died. It's, it's a compendium, an encyclopedia, really, of what it's possible to say and think about the body and about the, the relationship between mind and body um, in the early part of the 17th century. The book keeps expanding um, as, as Burton reworks it for subsequent editions. And 
But this is already in 1623, um, it's pretty compendious, and it includes, as the frontispiece tells us, various types of the, of the uh, melancholic, various subtypes of the melancholic, um, which includes, for example, um, a lengthy section, lengthy chapter on love melancholy, um, and so on. So, but over on the right-hand side is a particular type, hypochondriacus, um, about whom Burton spends, uh, I think it's just a short section of one chapter. It's in, in, in my edition, it's no more than two or three pages. And it's the section entitled On Windy or Hypochondriacal Melancholy. And windy or hypochondriacal melancholy, just as for all medical thinkers uh, of uh, Burton's century, is both a physical and psychological disease. In fact, it's primarily a physical disease. It's an organic disease with specific physical symptoms. Um, the hypochondriac appears here as a type of the melancholic. So um, he appears in the classic pose of the melancholic, which you might, may know from uh, Dürer's much more famous image, uh, Melancholia I, which is the head resting on the left hand. And he appears with, in front of him, various apothecaries bills and uh, discarded medicine bottles and so on. He appears also, and this begins to kind of link up to what Jane's going to talk about um, in a while, he also appears um, under a number of astrological symbols, and Burton tells us in this rather dreadful poem with which he introduces the book, which is called The Argument of the Frontispiece, um, he tells us that the hypochondriac appears under the sign of Saturn. So he shares with the melancholic a certain kind of astro astrological meaning as well as a set of physical um, and psychological symptoms. Now, the physical symptoms of hypochondria in 1623, let me just read you an extract from Burton's list. So, symptoms of windy hypochondriacal melancholy, and they include sharp belchings, fulsome crudities, heat in the bowels, wind and rumbling in the guts, vehement gripings, pain in the belly and stomach sometimes after meat that is hard of concoction, much watering of the stomach, and moist spittle, cold sweat, cold joints, Midriff and bowels are pulled up. The veins about their eyes look red and swell from vapours and wind. Their ears sing now and then. Vertigo and giddiness come by fits. Turbulent dreams, dryness, leanness. Grief in the mouth of the stomach, which maketh the patient think that his heart itself acheth. And there's more, much more, um, <laughs> in that vein. So hypochondria is, first of all, a set, an expanding set, um, of physical symptoms. And they have to do, first of all, the seat of hypochondria is the hypochondrium. The hypochondrium, as you may know, is that, part, that portion of the torso immediately beneath the ribs. So hypochondria, for many centuries, um, described, the term described, primarily dis disorders of that part of the body. So those disorders would have been, first of all, digestive disorders. And there's a line running through even the much later history of hypochondria, by which time it's lost most of its physical meaning. There's a line running through that, which is the history of indigestion. Um, and as we'll see later on, there's a particular history of Victorian dyspepsia, which I'm quite interested in. I'm interested in the, the meaning of dyspepsia um, and the meaning of flatulence, as we'll see later on. <laughs> so, moving into the 18th century, hypochondria maintains this sense of being a physical organic disease with verifiable, um, obvious symptoms. Um, Towards the, at the very end of the 18th century, at the, end of, at the very end of the 17th, rather, Thomas Willis, in his book The London Practice of Physic, uh, describes uh, patients who are wont to complain of a trembling and palpitation of the heart. 
frequent failings of the spirits, a danger of swooning, fluctuations of thoughts, inconstancy of mind, and imagination being affected with diseases of which they are free, and many other distractions of the spirit. So, alongside these physical symptoms, and Willis's description includes a lot of what Burton describes, alongside that, there appears this, this idea that the hypochondriac is also suffering from a kind of melancholia, in, in, the, more, in the strictly psychological sense, a kind of depression, uh, a lowering of the spirits. But alongside that, the hypochondriac is somebody who fears illness. He fears, first of all, illness in particular, in, in general, rather, and then he fears, and he's usually he, for reasons we'll, we'll uh, explore in a second, he usually fears, um, he quite often, rather, fears a specific disease. Um, there's a further stage, the further stage is one in which the hypochondriac is actually convinced that he suffers from a particular disease. And Burton had already mentioned this, and Burton gives examples for, exa for example, instance, uh, the hypochondriac who imagines that his or her body has been uh, invaded by some kind of parasite. Um, and Burton gives the example of a frog or a serpent uh, as a common, um, a common delusion. And we, we might come back to that later on um, when I, if I have a moment to think about uh, the more florid delusions in the history of hypochondria, which include um, imagining that one's body has disappeared, imagining that one's body has been replaced by various substances, imagining, for example, that one has turned to glass. Um, or to butter in an interesting um, instance. So, end of the 18th century, you, that you have a disease that is, that is first of all physical, but that has, has acquired this, this sense of a psychological disorder, this sense um, that is quite close to melancholia, that is a, an aspect of melancholia for Burton. For the writers of the 18th century, for the mid-18th century, um, it's a disease that has taken on a particular kind of cultural meaning. And the most uh, eloquent and, uh, and most wide-ranging expression of this comes in a book by the English physician George Chain. If I can find George Chain, do I need to find a book from Chain? Not necessarily. George Chain describes what he calls the English malady. And the English malady is English primarily because, says Chain, the English have attained a level of luxury and ease, physical ease. So he talks, for example, about the dangers of the card table and the dangers of the coach, of being, you know, this, this level of society that is, that is taking no exercise, is eating to excess, um, and has, has also has, crucially, um, time and space in which to turn their thoughts inwards, to turn their thoughts on their own bodies. So hypochondria is, is an English disease because it's a disease um, of modern luxury. Um, it's a disease of the modern world. And one of the things that's very striking, looking back through the history of hypochondria, is this sense that hypochondria has long been a modern disease. So you have a, you have a constant sense in the 18th century that we, meaning the English, are somehow now more hypochondriacal than our ancestors were. Um, and that, that sense that it's a disease of the moment keeps coming back curiously. But if we leap ahead, and here I, I want to kind of turn to... Um, some of the 19th century examples. This is another Daumier. This is an actual uh, illustration from Le Malade Imaginaire, Moliere's play, um, and is a good example of, uh, of the digestive history of, um, of hypochondria. Because what's about to happen to the hypochondria here is, is quite unthinkable. Um, <laughs> towards, so towards the end of the 18th century, this is a great um, Rowlandson cartoon in which you see the, the hypochondriac beset by all manner of fears. And some of those fears have to do with the body, but they, some of them have to do much more broadly with death. 
and they have even to do with violence. You know, so here you see um, uh, de decapitated heads. So you have this sense that it's, it's a timely disease because it relates also um, to certain kinds of political catastrophe. Um, so it's, it's both of the body and it's cultural. Uh, this is James Boswell, who suffered um, from a great fit uh, of hypochondria at the age of 22. Uh, this is Joan Fontaine um, in 1942, I think, in the Hollywood version of Jane Eyre. And Charlotte Bronte writes about... Charlotte Bronte is one of the people that I, I talk about in, in the book. But what's really interesting um, for, for my purposes today is that Charlotte Bronte is one of the great theorists, in a sense, of hypochondria in the middle of the 19th century. She mentions the word, she uses the term, um, in all of her novels. And she uses it to describe something that, in a way, we would think of nowadays as being somewhat closer to depression. She uses it to describe, for example, Jane Eyre's anxieties on the night before she is due to be married to Rochester. Um, if you remember in the novel, Jane expresses her fears at that point. She's afraid precisely because she knows that something is afoot in the house. Um, which we later, then of course, discover is, is, is the first Mrs. Rochester, the mad Mrs. Rochester. But she, she expresses her fears to Rochester, and he says, Jane, this is hypochondria. And he, he tells Jane, he says, this hypochondria has made you, and he uses this fantastic phrase, has made of you a little nervous subject. And this idea of the little nervous subject, the female hypochondriac, recurs time and again in, in uh, Bronte's writings. She refers to herself as a hypochondriac in a number of letters, it's an affliction that comes on her, she says, um, when, during her first teaching job at Rowhead, and then later on, um, when she was uh, in Brussels, when she was teaching in Brussels, which is the um, period in her life on which she bases the novel, I think her greatest novel, Villette. And the heroine of Villette, Lucy Snow, who is, in a sense, a little nervous subject, she's a character who keeps telling the reader that she's really nobody. She's just an, uh, a kind of... Um, witness who sits in the corner and watches real life happening around her. But, she says, she's also a hypochondriac. And she's a hypochondriac at this moment when she is stranded away from home in a foreign city and um, she's completely alone but feels that she's being watched constantly. And the moment where this becomes really interesting is in a section of the novel when Lucy is taken to the theatre and she watches across the theatre, she watches the, the Belgian king coming in and sitting down uh, in, his, in his box. And she sees something in the king's face. And Bronte writes, There sat a silent sufferer, a nervous, melancholy man. The eyes, these, those eyes had looked on the visits of a certain ghost, had long awaited the comings and goings of that strangest spectre, hypochondria. Perhaps he saw her now on that stage, over against him, amidst all that brilliant throng. Hypochondria has that wont to rise in the midst of thousands, dark as doom, pale as malady, and well-nigh strong as death. Her comrade and victim thinks to be happy one moment. Not so, says she, I come. And she freezes the blood in his heart and beclouds the light in his eye. So hypochondria seems to mean a particular kind of oversensitivity to those around one. In other words, the hypochondriac is somehow more sympathetic than the rest of us, which is a curious inversion, in a way, of, of the, the way that we use the term quite often nowadays, because the hypochondriac we nowadays think is the person who is simply is turned inwards, has turned in towards their own symptoms and their own physical and, uh, and, and psychological experiences, and is actually incapable of seeing outside of that. 
the 19th century, um, hypochondria was, in a sense, an overdeveloped kind of sympathy to the world around the patient. At least this is one strand of it, and it's a strand of it that links up, oddly, with a number of other points in, in uh, Victorian fiction. Um, actually, first of all, particularly in, in American fiction, you may recall um, Edgar Allan Poe. This is not Edgar Allan Poe. This is still from the 1928 um, French uh, film of uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Roderick Usher, in that story, who you may recall, is extraordinarily sensitive to the world around him. His psychological problem is that he feels everything too keenly. He, feel, he tastes things too strongly. Great smells. He's, he's terrified of, of strong smells. Um, he can only wear very delicate fabrics and fibres. He can actually feel, Poe tells us, he can actually sense the plants, the algae even, the very atmosphere even around his house, he can feel living and breathing and somehow becoming itself a kind of feeling being. So the hypochondriac is in this weird position of feeling not just his own body, but feeling the world around him in this incredibly um, super sensitive fashion. Um, there's a, a text um, which Charles Darwin um, read uh, when he was suffering from his own um, fit of hypochondria, um, of what he called thought of as hypochondria. Um, a text called The Water Cure in Chronic Disease by James Manby Gully, um, where he says the hypochondriac actually feels is so sensitive, so super sensitive, that he can feel, as Gully puts it, a cloud passing athwart the sky. So the hypochondriac is so sensitive that he actually feels the atmosphere around him um, as, as a, a painful force. Um, this is uh, a couple of illustrations of um, Darwin's favoured cure for his own suffering, which was the, uh, the water cure or hydrotherapy, which we may come back to, actually, because I'm skipping somewhat over Darwin, who in many ways is one of the, the prime hypochondriacs of the, the 19th century. It's a vexed, difficult thing to say about Darwin because he was actually probably suffering from some real illnesses. Um, this is Alice James. The other, just very briefly, um, the other great moment, which I only discovered very recently, um, in, of hypochondria in 19th century fiction is at the beginning of Moby Dick. The beginning of Moby Dick, um, you'll remember the opening lines of Moby Dick, call me Ishmael, etc. But Ishmael very, very quickly tells us um, that he's a hypochondriac. Um, and he talks about these fits that come over him and he must escape to sea because um, when my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. Then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. And he says um, that going to sea is, is, his, um, is his replacement for, as he puts it, pistol and ball. So, to a, so hypochondria, literally, um, <coughs> it leads him to a position of he's actually suicidal. It's hypos, and hypo, hypo was, it was a common... Um, uh, common term used to describe the, the element at that point in the 19th century. Now, I'm aware that I'm, I'm about to run out of time here, so I'm going to move really, really quickly, and, and, and this is, in a sense, if there is an argument here, this is the nub of the argument. The argument goes that by the end of the 19th century, this sense of hypochondria, which in many ways is, is overlaps with the way that we use the term now, but is also, in some respects, quite distance, distant from it, is expressed precisely as a kind of aestheticism. The hypochondriac is a type of dandy. If you read, for example, um, Against Nature, Arabur, the 
great um, decadent French novel um, by uh, J.K. Huysmans. Um, the, the hero of that novel is aristocrat Desassent, who retreats from the world into this hyper-aesthetic and, and, uh, and uh, artificial realm, is, is a hypochondriac. He's a hypochondriac um, precisely because he feels the world pressing upon him too strongly. And the great expression of this, of course, is à la recherche de temps perdu. Proust, retiring to his, uh, his cork-lined room, discovering, unfortunately, within 24 hours that he's allergic to the cork in the cork-lined room. Um, Proust was well aware of that history, of that history of thinking about hypochondria as a type of aestheticism. And the, the name for this at the end of the, the, the 19th century in, in medical texts is um, synesthesia. That's C-O-E rather than S-Y-N. So synesthesia, or the common sense. Common sense is that sense, supposedly, that brings together all of the other five senses. Um, and it's, it's through the common sense that we feel things like uh, giddiness and fatigue and so on, uh, sensations that don't seem to reduce to any one of the other particular um, five senses. And Proust's father, Proust's father, who was in touch with many of the writers on, on this particular uh, condition, Proust, it seems, was well aware, this is at least my conjecture, um, that Proust was well aware of that theory. And in a sense, uh, Proust's novel is kind of a great expression, the last expression, in a sense, um, of 19th century hypochondria. Because what happens after Proust, after this moment, um, is Freud. Um, and maybe we can come back to Freud later, because I'm going to stop, because Freud didn't have much, to, um, had some things to say on hypochondria. But in a sense, what Freud, Freud's theory of hypochondria more or less kills off um, this hyper-aesthetic, sophisticated sense um, of, of that the hypochondriac is, in a sense, an artist. And if there is a final point to make, I think it is this, that not that great artists, and I write about some great artists and some great writers in the book, not that great artists are necessarily hypochondriacs, but rather, in a sense that I think is sort of defensible, that hypochondriacs are in themselves artists. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks very much, Brian. Our second speaker is Dr. Jane Darcy. Um, Jane has recently completed a PhD at King's College London, uh, looking at medical and literary constructions of melancholy in literary biography. Uh, she's also been awarded a British Academy postdoctoral fellowship, which she started quite recently, um, and has published numerous articles on melancholy writers, including William Cooper, who she's going to speak about today. Thank you very much. Not quite numerous articles, three. <laughs> Thank you, though. I'll leave Chris there. Um, no, no, Chris is great, because I didn't bring visuals. Um, although I'm going to speak about, uh, to start off with, um, two pictures, and I regret not bringing them for you. Some of you may have seen a wonderful art exhibition in Paris and Berlin in the winter of 2005 and 2006, entitled Melancholy, Genie et Folie, so Melancholy, Genius and Madness. And there was a huge range of work, from Dürer's famous etching of melancholy, um, to the contemporary artist Ron Muick, the man who makes these big, um, either hyper-real, naked figures. And they had Ron Muick's twice-life-size figure of a depressed middle-aged man. This figure struck me as particularly poignant, an emblem of modern-day depression. He was sitting on a floor in a remote corner, alone and nakedly vulnerable. The, etcher, the Dura etching, as you recall, and have just seen, in fact, um, um, 
sits in a melancholy pose, which has been described to us, but is surrounded by geometrical astrological tools thought to symbolise the influence of Saturn, the planet of melancholy, as, as uh, Brown's told us. And so it was through many of the works in this exhibition, the paintings of Caspar David Friedrich, for example, with their remote, lonely figures turned away from us, looking towards featureless landscapes, are at least part of something, part of the very tragedy of the landscapes themselves. And the point with the Romuic is there was absolutely nothing around him to contextualise his suffering. It was just there and naked. There were no, there were no symbols. And beyond this, what struck me about the exhibition was just how popular it was. And I wondered if it had not been called melancholy but depression, whether it would have drawn the same crowds. Clearly, melancholy as a term resonates in a way the word depression does not, suggesting a human, profound human experience, something that can be given aesthetic representation. Surely, melancholy is the reason we're drawn to, for example, Schubert's Winterreiser or elegiac poetry, or Shakespearean tragedy. Part of my interest in melancholy was a sense of dissatisfaction with our current biochemical model of depression, and that's something that Darian Leader has recently published on in his book, The New Black. Depression, as a term, doesn't seem to take into account the deep sadness of bereavement and loss and loneliness. The particular question I asked myself was, where did we lose that sense that melancholy was a state to be reverenced? Why do we accept the narrow medical definition of depression as somehow all-embracing? So my particular academic project became an exploration of the changing cultural status of melancholy. Why was melancholy once considered a badge of distinction in the 18th century, evidence of one's refined sensibility? And why was it that it accrued stronger and stronger overtones of shamefulness in the 19th century, with the attendant medical terms like neurasthenia, hysteria, and neurosis. Like Brian, I looked at a series of various 18th and 19th century writers who were considered in their day to be melancholics. Like Brian found, I imagine, I was spoiled for choice. What I did, which is different from Brian's work, is to look specifically at the early biographies of these writers. So the question I asked was, what had biographers made of their subjects melancholy? Now, just at this moment, I'm not going to embark on trying to sort of disentangle the complex etymology of the historical medical terms melancholy, melancholia, hypochondria, and spleen, but I imagine that's something you'll almost certainly want to ask us about in the discussion. Briefly, however, I should say that melancholy and hypochondria in the 18th century were overlapping terms, sometimes used synonymously, but where the focus of um, hypochondria, as Brian has told us, with physical symptoms, melancholy concentrated on the sufferer's state of mind. I started my work with the hypothesis that the fate of melancholy was closely bound up with both medical history and the history of literary biography. What I gradually discovered, however, there was something more specific about melancholy, and this was that its demotion, as it were, as both medical and a cultural concept, was intimately connected with the rejection of religious melancholy from the end of the 18th century, and this is what I want to illustrate now. Medical textbooks early, earlier in the 18th century recognised religious melancholy as a distinct disease category. In the early 17th century, as Brian's told you, when Robert Burton published The Anatomy of Melancholy, religious melancholy was explained in supernatural terms. God had sent you these melancholy pains so that you could amend your ways. 
On the other hand, it might be the devil tempting you to despair. It was your call. Enlightenment medicine had got rid of all this supernatural thinking about the direct intervention of God or the devil, but it continued to recognise the significance of the suffering soul. Melancholics who were troubled about damnation, and after all Dr Johnson was one of these, needed both medical help for their physical symptoms and divine counsel. Not everyone saw it that way. The huge numbers caught up in the evangelical revival in the 18th century continued to believe that God intervened directly into your life. And of course they were constantly preoccupied with examining themselves for evidence that they were truly saved. And this is where we come to the poet William Cooper, who I'd like to tell you about. Cooper was born in 1731 and died in 1800. He was one of two poetic sensations in the 1780s, the other being Robert Burns. His popular poem, The Task, is a long meditation on, amongst other things, domestic pleasures. The cup that cheers, but not inebriates, is one of his lines. <laughs> he liked wine, too. The poem also celebrates not the idealised landscape of the picturesque, but the particular woods and fields and rivers round about him and his chosen home of Olney in Buckinghamshire. This poem is often seen as the precursor of romanticism. Wordsworth and Coleridge were huge admirers of Cooper. The task is not a confessional poem as such, but in it, importantly, Cooper alludes to his profound sense of religious melancholy. And when I start reading this little tiny extract, I'm sure you'll recognise the first line. I was a stricken deer that left the herd long since. <coughs> With many an arrow deep infixed, my panting side was charged. When I withdrew to seek a tranquil death in distant shades, there was I found by one who had himself been hurt by the archers. In his side he bore, and in his feet and hands, the cruel scars. And Cooper was also a hymn writer. He collaborated on what became called the Olney Hymns with John Newton, who was the author of Amazing Grace. And one of Cooper's most famous ones is God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. So you do know a bit of Cooper, even if you think you didn't. In the 1780s, when the unknown Cooper suddenly achieved fame, the whole cult of celebrity was yet to happen. Literary biography, as we know it today, was in its infancy. Johnson died in 1784, but of course Boswell's life of him didn't appear till 1791. Inasmuch as anything was known by the public about Cooper's life, it was evident from his poetry that he was a gentle, religious melancholic who had chosen to live a reclusive life, far from the madding crowd, Thomas Gray's lines, not Cooper's. Despite this, he became in his lifetime probably the most popular poet of the 18th century. If anything, his poetry was to become even more popular after his death. Cambridge academic William St. Clair has recently demonstrated from evidence of booksellers' records that Cooper was to become in the 19th century probably the most popular and most read poet that had ever lived. We know, of course, he was Jane Austen's favourite poet. But while his poetry remained popular with all classes of reader, his personal reputation, as presented in a series of competing biographies, underwent a dramatic change. By 1871, Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine was describing him as a poor, solitary, half-insane human creature, without any of the bolder, manly gifts which please our national taste. They went on, a timid, sad, half-feminine figure, a hypochondriac, a man sick in body and soul. 
So what had happened? Why was Cooper no longer a reclusive religious melancholic, but a pathetic, half-insane hypochondriac? Various respectful biographies of Cooper appeared in the first 15 years after he died, notably the three-volume one by William Haley, who had known Cooper in his final years. Haley's biography, incidentally, was one of, the, one of the first of a new type of biography, the life and letters. The first as such had only appeared in 1775, which was Mason's life of Thomas Gray. Haley knew the whole extent of Cooper's suffering. He knew the fact that Cooper had recurrent periods of madness and had in fact spent many months in a private asylum in the 1760s. But Haley passes over this, alluding merely to morbid tendency to diffidence, <coughs> to melancholy and to despair, which darkened into periodical fits of the most deplorable depression. They do use the word then. What he doesn't ever use is madness or insanity. But why doesn't he use religious melancholy? Well, one of the things Haley tones down is evidence of Cooper's dramatic evangelical conversion in 1765. If I tell you this took place while Cooper was a patient in a private asylum, you can imagine why this might have been a sensitive issue. Would it be thought that this conversion was in fact a symptom of madness? And what would the public make of the fact that when the ecstasy of conversion wore off, Cooper had a terrible dream in which he heard a voice telling him he was damned, and he went on believing that for the rest of his life. The most important thing Haley does for Cooper is publish um, his letters posthumously, which delighted the reading public, with his delightful Austin-like observations about life in a small town, his friends, his garden, famously his pet hares. And it's with the publication of these letters that the interest in Cooper makes a decisive shift from his poetry to his private life. Simultaneously, however, a bitter debate began between opponents of evangelicalism, who used Cooper as evidence that Methodism drives you mad, and of course evangelicals themselves, for whom Cooper had been the poster boy, and who had now most to lose if it were proved that Cooper's madness was a direct result of his evangelical beliefs. At the same time, from the 1790s onwards, medical understanding had shifted towards proving that so-called nervous illness stemmed in fact from the brain, not the soul, not spirits somehow conveyed through your nerves, but the brain. So of course, religious melancholy fast began to lose its medical respectability. And then you get the case of Cooper. Well, briefly, the final nail in the coffin of religious melancholy was the unauthorized publication in 1816 of a manuscript Cooper had written for his small circle of evangelical friends back in 1767. In this, he gave the history of his religious conversion, and in so doing, offered explicit details of the searing experience of suicidal madness that had preceded it. It's a text we now refer to as Adelphi. Probably most damaging to Cooper's subsequent reputation is the unintentionally farcical account of a succession of failed suicide attempts. Cooper tries to drown himself in the Thames, but the tide is out. Same day, he goes home and pours a quantity of laudanum into a bowl, intending to drink it, but the fumes overcome him and he passes out. <laughs> he then throws the laudanum out the window. He tries to stab himself, but with a penknife which breaks. And finally, he tries to hang himself by a garter from his bed frame. But, in his own words, by the blessed providence of my God, the garter broke just before eternal death would have taken place upon me. So it's not 
just the suicide attempts that shocked readers. Many questioned the kind of religious belief that sanctioned Cooper's re-reading of the events of his life as divinely intended. It was very hard, then, from the publication of Adelphi onwards, to see Cooper as anything other than a religious madman, albeit one who had long intervals of lucidity. When Robert Salvey wrote his biography of Cooper in the 1830s, he had no hesitation in spelling this out, with chapters such as First Indication of a Capitalised Diseased Mind and Rise and Progress of His Insanity, as related by himself. So I hope I've suggested from this very brief sketch that it was biographical revelations about Cooper, the fact that a once-revered religious melancholic was outed as a madman, that fatally damages the standing of religious melancholy, and therefore of melancholy in general. When I looked at lives of several writers after that, I found that their biographers tended not to present melancholy in a positive light. And I'll leave you with one more poignant image of a melancholy man. It's Cooper again. Cooper was taken care of in his final years of insanity by a young cousin, Johnny Johnson, a vicar. Johnny describes Cooper as particularly fearing Sundays when Johnny's religious duties took him from home. He seemed to be haunted, he wrote, with a continual dread that they would leave him alone. And Johnny finished, It was the practice of the dejected poet to listen frequently on the steps of the hall door for the barking of dogs at a farmhouse, which in the stillness of the night, though at nearly the distance of two miles, invariably announced the approach of his companion. It's an image of melancholy, I feel, that finds echoes in Ron Muick's 21st century sculpture. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jane. Our final speaker today is Sally O'Reilly. Sally is um, an art writer and critic and writes for magazines such as Art Monthly and Freeze. She has published a book published by Thames and Hudson called The Body in Contemporary Art, and she's going to move our discussion forward historically, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> contemporary examples as well. Hello. Um, oh, I just got off a bit quickly. I'm a bit giddy. It seems quite fitting. Uh, I'm going to give you a very quick gallop through uh, contemporary art and the idea of disease more widely. Disease in terms of the artist's body, but also the audience's. Um, is it chilly when I come down? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to start off with a paradox of nudism, of naturism, rather, which uh, is it, I think the naturist considers himself to be expressing an opposition to received uh, norms and behavioural codes. Uh, but, kind of paradoxically, they do it by revealing the one thing that we have in common, i.e., our, our, our bodies. So I think this quite succinctly succinctly demonstrates how the body is the locus of differentiation but also singularity and I was uh, raised by naturists, this is my stepfather here uh, and so I rebelled of course as you do and became a complete prude so hence the high uh, high chested flowery dresses and, uh, and, and, and I think a lot of the art world also has a rather prudish uh, relationship to the body I find it embarrassing and, and uh, sort of embarrassingly emotive, a bit too visceral, a bit too sort of real and immediate. It's, it's as if it's sort of too corporeal for, for a cerebral world. And there's a real association, I think, within the visual arts, that sort of gallery-based, studio-based sort of idea of the visual arts rather than the sort of expanded performative 
world, which is a bit more forgiving. But in that sort of very gallery-led area, uh, it's associated with with uh, what's called live art, which which is um, spawned images like this, which are all very visceral. Oh, I can use this, can't I? I call them the um, the bleeders and chuff stuffers. <laughs> but of course, they they did perform some extremely important. Uh, uh, functions during the time, very politically fueled. And I think the reason that they have been negated by the, the gallery-centric visual art world is because, well, skill, traditionally, art is bound up with ideas of skill and facture, but in the late 20th century, that has been rather, rather negated, and it's a process of de-skilling that has, that has rather taken place. Uh, and so the idea of Authenticity and the immediacy of, of, of this sort of this sort of body-based work—it it sets a sort of difficult relationship in motion in terms of skill, presence, materiality. Mm. I think. What do I think? I think we're at a very interesting point now, where actually the art world is starting to acknowledge that the body can do interesting things well. In fact, this week I was in Blackpool and I saw a guy, a rubber man, who fitted through a 12-inch tennis racket, which was phenomenal. <laughs> so I think we're at a point now where, where the body in art is being released from some of the difficult cliches that have arisen around 70s uh, uh, sort of identity politics. And uh, it's, it's also pulling the fig leaf from the traditional idea of the nude which was a process that, that began in the 19th century. Um, this is Manet's Olympia, which was painted in 1863. And this was a radical point because here the prostitute, Olympia, Olympia being a very common nom de guerre of a prostitute, here she's acknowledging her self-consciousness, her presence. And so she's not just a delectation for the voyeur, but she is, she is being represented as a real human being. Um, I think we can, we can whiz straight through to 1981, and here we have Annie Sprinkle, who invited the audience to view her vulva by way of a speculum and a torch. And, and for me, this is a sort of direct analogue of, of Manet's, the, the eyes, the eye contact of, of Olympia with the viewer. Here, the viewer sort of seeing the inner eye of woman, that being the sort of unwinking vulva. So here, the, the body is starting to be de-romanticised, and it's it's being, it's being made sexually potent, but on the woman's terms. And then at times, this is Dorota Sadowska, excuse my Czech pronunciation, and she is again de-romanticizing the body and showing that it is pure flesh, that it's a sculptural <coughs> material. And then Mark Wallinger's Eke Homo, which we have hopefully all experienced and stood in front of on the, on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. And, and here, Wallinger is reminding us of the frailty of what it is to be human. So here, the human body is, is appearing at its own scale, rather than at that sort of pompous, uh, uh, you know, the, the military demigod that would usually populate these sorts, of, uh, these sorts of plinths. We are allowed to encounter one of us instead. Now, this de-idealization, which has been a, a sort of trajectory that we can follow, through an art historical discourse, which I'm skipping through by going uh, Manet, uh, Annie Sprinkle, um, it 
can often be ironically reversed by the contemporary artist. So this is a piece by Charles Ray, and it's a mannequin that's been endowed with some genitals that were cast from his own. And this piece came about because Ray fell out with a colleague at the UCLA, and he thought it'd be really amusing if he installed loads of mannequins around the local department store to freak this guy out. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that idea of academic uh, adversaries. <laughs> And the clothed body, too, um, it, it carries socio-political readings. This is Lee Barry and his outrageous costumes. Uh, he was wearing them in Soho clubs. He would make a new costume for every club night that, that he went to, which was sort of practically, practically every night of the week. And, and this was intended as a an affront to Thatcherite conservatism. But also, it was an outrageous self-promotional tool when those with HIV, those that were HIV positive, were supposed to disappear. He made himself sort of uber visible. So the body then is, a, a, it produces but also is a product of culture and identity which we can only partly control. Now this is a piece by Santiago Sierra called The Back of 30 Car uh, Caracans and he photographed the backs of 30 people who were working in Caracas and he asked them to put themselves in an earnings bracket. So those who who earned nothing, those that earned up to a thousand, and those that earned up to well, a million dollars. And then he, photo he took the, uh, well, he photographed them in black and white, uh, so I should make that explicit. And then he took the, um, hang on, I need to look at the numbers for this. He calculated their average skin tone. So zero comes in, as you can see, appreciably darker than the millionaires on the right. And then he calculated the gray scales, so he found a correlative value of black and white, and black was minus $2,106, and white was $11,548.41.5. So a massive correlative difference there between black and white, which tells us a lot in very simple uh, statistical terms. So the idea of the body as producing identities, as well as being sort of marked by culture, can be seen here through horrific uh, I mean, beautiful uh, <laughs> body modifications. And this is taken to uh, rather amazing extremes by uh, an Italian artist called Robert Quoghi, who transformed his body into that of his father's by when he was, I think he was 25, and his father was in his 40s, maybe approaching his, no, probably 50s, quite old, anyway. <laughs> and he, he changed his diet. Uh, this is the sign now, changed his diet, started wearing different clothes, and he spoke different, used a different vocabulary, uh, stopped exercising, and his body did change shape, and he did become his father, so to speak. He, he, oh, he dyed his hair grey as well. And after seven years of this, well, his father died, sadly, and so uh, the artist thought that maybe the point had been made in the way that he was treated very differently by friends and, and colleagues was, 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 was the, kind of the outcome of this piece. So he decided to change back to himself. So he started eating what he would normally eat. Well, he found that he couldn't revert to the body of an early, or someone in their early 30s. He was stuck as a middle-aged man, and he'd been sort of irreparably damaged. So therefore, our cultural behavior works backwards, well, well, works in the other direction, and affects our physical stature entirely. Again, there's, there's very much a documentary term, uh, turn going on in visual arts. Uh, over the last 10 years or so as well. 
Uh, and I think when it comes to the body, we have to treat the subject very delicately because we've seen it's, it's a sort of cultural, uh, uh, social political <coughs> issue. So anthropologists reject the idea of objectivizing the body by just holding a camera towards somebody and not allowing them to create their own representation. But then they also they also suggest that it's a bad idea to over over empathize, to embed yourself within a community and make a portrait of it from within, because then you're the, the representation will be influenced that way too. So one of the ideas of getting around this to, is to hand over the means of production to the subject. Uh, Jordan Baseman, this is a video by him, uh, this polemic is, well, this, this, this um, dichotomy of the anthropologist is being spoken over footage of a hidden camera uh, that's pointing at this Rome street beggar. And it's a direct contradiction of, of this, um, the paradox of, of the anthropologist. And John Baseman is saying that, well, actually, the artist acknowledges it's impossible not to be uh, subjective. It's impossible to be objective. The moment you point the camera at somebody, you're, you're making a, a, a framing decision, at least. So, uh, so let's just get on with it and start saying interesting things. Now, we get to Matt Fraser, who would say, well, handing over the means of, of, of uh, production is really patronizing. I've got my own toolbox, thank you very much. Um, he, he reconstructs um, Coney Island Freak Show. Uh, th this, this was a real person whose name unfortunately completely escapes me. Uh, but he was around in 1911 uh, performing tricks with his little handsies, as he called them. And, and Matt Fraser reproduces and, and confronts the audience with this, with this supposed entertainment. And he, he places himself at the centre of popular cultural forms. He also uh, produced and directed and starred in Thalidomide, the musical. And so here he's challenging assumptions about incapacity and, uh, and the difference in relation to the body. So another strand within contemporary art, I think, can draw on the traditional alignment of the human body with that of the animal, with, with the beast at a biological but also at an atavistic level. Uh, this is a piece by Kiki Smith, and she also makes work that references scientific frameworks of knowledge. So there'll be nice sculptures of glass offal, for instance. Uh, so she, she's suggesting that there's perhaps a parity between scientific and uh, mythical and intuitive frameworks, uh, so, that, so that the body be, can be pathologized uh, according to either. There are many ways of understanding ourselves. And technology, too, becomes uh, a means to represent the hidden parts of the, of the body. There were other, otherwise, uh, well, hitherto, um, impossible to see without killing the, the specimen. So I think this, this is a piece by Wim Delfoy, and I think he provocatively desensualizes uh, uh, intimate but very base biological functions. So the body is thrown into ambiguity in terms of the ownership of our, of, of our emotional uh, reaction to the situations that we place it in. Mona Hartoum, too, her corpetrange, uh, she, she subjected herself to an endoscopy and colposcopy. And I think what's kind of interesting about this is that while this is perhaps the most intimate uh, self-portrait, it's also the kind of the, 
utterly anonymous. I, I don't think I could uh, identify my own uh, rectum from the inside, I have to admit. Uh, but it, it unleashes uh, subconscious fears of the body as sci-fi other. This piece, it, it has a loud uh, audio track of this quite avant-garde sci-fi sort of uh, soundtrack type thing going on, lots of beating, mm, very tense. Um, another artist dealing with the possibilities of the post-human is Stellark, post-human being the uh, point at which evolution is driven by human technological endeavour rather than biological processes. Uh, but here the artist applies it to situations that have no utilities. I think he's, he's foregrounding the futility of art and uh, being so loose as to harness quite high-end technology to, to achieve quite absurd things. So this is an ear, an ear that it picks up all that he hears and then it transmits it over the internet. Uh, he was thinking of citing it there for a while, but, but he went for the, uh, for the forearm in the end, I think, for sort of convenience so he can reach a little further. Of course, technology being uh, the amplification of the capacity of the body, sort of by definition. John Isaacs, uh, he warns us about, about um, science and te technology, uh, and he's suggesting that advance advancements have become counterintuitive or destructive. <coughs> And the logic of science is developing into a universe of irrationalities and monsters. And here, I guess it's kind of a straightforward reading that, that we become uh, grotesque through, through endeavours that are intended to improve health and efficiency. Interestingly, health and efficiency is the title of one of the earliest naturist magazines. There you go, nice circular link there. Uh, monst monsters and, and grotesques ancient ideas and, and we find outlets to suit our every uh, cultural context. But the main tropes of the grotesque are fragmentation, uh, the breaching of the skin, penetration of orifices or orifi. Um, but there's a hierarchy to the penetration of, of orifices, uh, so eating and drinking, uh, core social activities. And, and the ear is okay, the nose maybe not so much, but anything below the belt is, is certainly sort of socially taboo. Um, frailty of, of mental health. This is a piece by Charlie White. And uh, here he's representing the monster within and a sense of incongruity uh, during of so, of social occasions. Uh, yes, oh, oh, can I show you this? Yeah, right. Um, gelatin, yes, some artists pursue, willfully pursue the grotesque uh, as if to display some sort of social sickness. This is gelatin. Who, who, who stage really boring performances and they throw social niceties out the window. This is, this is their, um, their chandelier. <laughs> and, and here, uh, it, it, it all seems very transgressive and they're contesting the re uh, received uh, normalised codes of behaviour. Now I'm going to have to do a little jiggery-pokery thing here because we've got a little cross-platform issue. I want to show you a video of Martin Creed this is a little bit um, screaming making. <coughs> Bless you. Uh, Martin Creed, if you're familiar with his work, will, will generally work with, like, say, some girders and place them very, very formally uh, in, in a way that is completely deadpan. It sounds 
odd to talk about girders in terms of deadpan, but uh, you, you kind of know what I mean. And, and here he's, he's treating the body with a similar kind of formal approach. And he's looking at, I guess, what is a malfunction as a formal proposition. Um, 
It seems to me, you know, at the, at the end of what I was saying, I, su I suggested um, somewhat um, facetiously that, that all hypochondriacs are, to some extent, artists. And what I meant by that, I think, was that what the hypochondriac exhibits is, at one and the same time, a turning in on oneself um, and a level of retreat from the world in an attempt to control that portion of the world that seems controllable, which is the body. And at the same time, an absolute openness of the body, the body becoming um, anatomized in the old-fashioned sense of the word, the word that Burton means when he, when he uses it, that the body becomes, as it were, um, part of a kind of catalogue, you know, the, the body parts are externalized and become, as it were, almost part of a collection in which you know, the hypochondriac enumerates the various portions of his or her body that are going wrong and sees the body. And what this is one of the things that hypochondriacs are afraid of is actually that their bodies are somehow leaking out into the world, that they become separate from themselves, that they double their bodies in some way. And the great example of this um, in terms of the history of 20th century art is Andy Warhol, who <coughs> is a, a, a fantastic hypochondriac. He's afraid of everything. He's afraid of hospitals. He's afraid of catching cancer from his friends. He's afraid of drinking cold cocktails because he might get pneumonia. Um, and ultimately, towards the end of his life, he's afraid of AIDS. Um, but Warhol's work seems to me really interesting in response to what Sonny has just been, been talking about in that he exhibits, first of all, this, this attempt to control, this absolutely rigid self-image, for example, and an attempt, as, you know, as Warhol famously said, I want to be a machine. Um, he also says in the same text, his philosophy, he says, um, I never fall apart because I never fall together. So on the one hand, there is this sense of, of inhuman control. On the other, there is this sense that his body is already expanded. It's never actually going to become an integral whole. He's, he's already... Um, projecting himself out into the world and I think you see that in a lot of Warhol's films in particular rather than in, the, in paintings because they're all about in a sense Warhol imagining what it would be like to have a body you know, what would it be like to be Edie Sedgwick um, or John Giorno, his, his lover who's completely at ease with his, with his body and I suppose the question I want to sort of ask I think I want to ask Sally about this is whether the really interesting contemporary art is the art that, that, that deals with the, these issues is actually the stuff that is poised somehow, is wrestling with that problem of anatomization and control um, and at the same time kind of splurging excess. My pro one of my problems with Stellark, for example, is that it seems like there's a very kind of easy uh, kind of allegorical well, our, our bodies are, are now prostheses, says Stellark, and so here I am with the pros prosthetic here, literally, you know, sewed into my arm. But there isn't a sort of dialectic between these two poles of control and, and letting go. It seems to me really interesting in, in many of the others, like Creed is the obvious example. Does that sort of make sense? Uh, I'm not sure. Let's give it a go. Okay. Um, the, the idea of, so you're saying that Stoic is... Um, is negating excess? Or, or yeah, I mean, I'm actually. not a massive fan of Stellark. He's, he's a very good illustration of a point, or, yeah. which is that of um, uh, the, the absurdity and the possibilities of, of prosthetics. Um, and there are performances where he's hooked up to remote audiences and he just tests such ideas as people's sense of responsibility for their interaction with the bodies of others. So he's he's hooked up using 
violent or, or that, that, that then enact some sort of electrical shock in various parts of his body and these are mediated and moderated through a computer that's then dissipated or around the world or to an audience that are in another city and they can they can perform electric shocks on him from a distance so that they are not identifiable as, as culpable. So I think there is a sort of a, a strange uh, testing there of the ideas of excess and distance and presence in the world in, in, in that uh, technological kind of way. But who are you thinking of in terms of what, what do you think? Well, I suppose Creed seems like like really interesting because of that that sort of level of, of kind of laconic kind of rigor and control as against kind of yeah, but I chaotic. Think, I think we yeah, but it's very difficult to draw parallels with him and Warhol because of the cultural context. Oh, yeah. And obviously, Creed is working incredibly wryly at all times, uh, as opposed to O'Reilly, which is uh, how I work. And uh, I, I think that formalism, that, that sort of cold, boil off the excess kind of approach to materials and the body as material, is, an, is laconic as a, as a sort of byproduct, I think. It feels as though it's a stance for, for making work in a slightly cynical way, maybe. Maybe, a, maybe even, dare I say, a sort of commercially-led stance. It's his practice, and I think a lot of artists are operating after Warhol has established that idea of the artist as identity, or the artist as personality. Uh, Creed is very much working in that way as, as a cue taken from that, but I don't think as self-consciously as Warhol. It's sort of become it's become ingrained in what an artist is these days. Jane, is there anything in that that you'd like to pick up on in terms of excess and control? No, I was just wondering, this is off, off wall, but how does David from the Roybich, the way he sets himself up, how does he fit into that? The, the gay performance. Do you know his thought? I don't. All right, Shockingly. <laughs> but setting himself up, I... And um, the bleed on, you know, do performances when you bleed. There's lots of bleeders mm. and lots of, <laughs> lots of people sewing bits up. There are people who've sewn their feet and their eyelid. And, the, and, the and there is... I, I got in a bit of tangle, a bit of a tangle at the beginning uh, when I was talking, um, but the idea that that uh, way of representing or presenting yourself mm. is more authentic than the pictorial representation, I think, is is an idea that is crumbling right now, and that's why we're at a very interesting point in art. <coughs> people aren't insisting that it's that that presentation is more somehow uh, valorized than representation. I suppose I felt a bit disturbed that when you talked about transgressive, it seemed that everyone was doing it, so how transgressive is it? Isn't it the normal now? <laughs> um, you know, everyone's setting themselves up. Exhibiting <laughs> 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 themselves. Well, there is a sense that uh, the, if, if you do, someone's going to say there is a sort of tutting and rolling of the eyes. It has become a cliche now, which, which is a shame because it's a very important uh, vein of practice at a very particular time. But now in these the, you know, identity politics is is suffused and is, is coming out in, in um, less provocative, less display-oriented means. And it, 
it's in the fabric of what people do. Okay, let's turn it over to the audience for questions. Do you want to look back? Please wait for the microphone to come to you. This is just a question for about contemporary art, um, of which I, I don't have a background in, so pardon if this is an ignorant question. But I guess I'm wondering, it, has, has, it seems to me, from my understanding, visiting the Tate, it has become a bit of a cliche to have these mutilated, bleeding, self-hating representations of the body. And I guess I'm wondering if there are contemporary artists, um, or if it's really just considered a historical kind of approach to the body, uh, that represent a healthy, like celebratory images of the body, appreciative images of the body, uh, healthy bodies, easy bodies, strong bodies, that sort of thing, or if that's just considered too old. <laughs> there, there, there are a few. Brian, do you want to pitch in? Uh, I'm trying to think of one. I'm thinking of <laughs> well, uh, Rather scandalously, uh, Vanessa Beecroft will will um, in make installations where there are live models of very beautiful people that are dressed similarly but slightly weirdly and generally naked and, and uh, it, it is provocative to feminists and post-feminists alike because she seems to be perpetuating the idealised body but she, she's, she claims to be celebrating it but then there's also Matthew Barney yeah. who, um, who makes extraordinary feature films of very high production, and he's basically celebrating his own body, uh, that of his wife Pjorks, and he talks about, is it hypertronic training, I think, where the body reacts against forces, weights, pressure to, a, to achieve, it's, it's a, a really macho kind of practice, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, bo bodies in Matthew Barney's films are, are so beautiful, they've reached such a level of, of kind of perfection that they've gone beyond into some weird baroque kind of realm so that I mean, that, that is quite interesting that which which you know I mean that our everyday life is full of bodies that have reached such a level of perfection that they've become grotesque right I mean one of the things that if I had carried on this argument this historical argument about hypochondria that's partly in the book and partly in what I'm saying today it would have to include Michael Jackson you know it, it would have to include a moment at which the, the search for the, the absolutely perfect body becomes actually a search for a body that, that disintegrates, that literally falls to pieces. Um, but it falls to pieces at exactly the moment where what, what's being aimed at is a sense of a completely neutral body. You know, and that, that, those, that's perfection now, apparently, according to mainstream media, is a physical body that, is, that has a, a totally blank sheen that's totally inexpressive. Um, that, that has attained a, a, a level of neutrality um, that is actually precisely hypochondriacal. That, that's one of the things that the hypochondriac dreams of, is, that, is the body that, where nothing happens, where you feel nothing, um, where nothing changes. And that, of course, is, is actually death, right? I mean, that's, um, the, the, there's a whole history of, of, in hypochondria of, of beauty, and you know, I mean, it goes back to, um, uh, as well, the, the whole discourse on around melancholia and hysteria um, and the ways that those are linked to actual physical diseases in, in the 19th century. That somehow, which is why there's no simple answer to say, well, what would it mean now to, to represent a beautiful or healthy body? Because beauty and health are never, in a, never extricable from morbidity, right? I mean, our, our ideas of beauty and health always carry within them a level uh, of grotesquerie and sickness to, to strive for 
physical perfection is in itself a disease, right? I mean, it's a, it's a madness. Common sense uh, comes into this and tells you quite uh, frankly, you know, what is. But um, I found Sally's uh, uh, contribution very interesting. But I've been wondering, um, how does it tie in with art and illness? Oh, because that, you're talking about self-immolation and, uh, and, and this is uh, ra- rather than um, uh, medical this, illnesses. Uh, I, I've been, yeah, I was looking at this is when the representation of the body is thrown into difficulties it, it problematized the, the relationship between the artist and their own body or the viewer and, and their sense of well-being yes, is, is, yes. is upset thank you very much and I'd just like to make a small comment uh, to uh, you, you saying um, the paintings of Caspar uh, David Friedrich mm. are intensely melancholic actually I would say or they are melancholic but I would say they are intensely uh, Spiritual, and that's a different quality. It, it's uh, to maybe to the modern mind, it suggests melancholy. But uh, to, to me, say I, some more about that because I've, I've, well, I'm with <laughs> you on that one. Well, I think melancholy, in distinction to hypochondria, with the focus of the body, I think melancholy is. I mean, it's a difficult word to use in academia, spiritual. Yes, but well, in fact, um, uh, I find you know the two terms terribly interesting because <laughs> when you were talking about. Uh, about depression and melancholy, and I instantly thought, oh, melancholy is, is a sadness but, but a sadness, but with a spiritual quality, and that divides it from dis- depression. And um, uh, I am German, so I look at these. Maybe we are used to having a certain philosophical melancholy in our sort of general uh, makeup, but um, you know, to me, those paintings are intensely spiritual and very. Um, Yes, no, that's really what I was saying. I think that, probably I didn't put this very clearly, but um, why I thought the Ron Muick picture, why it so, just feels like depression, is there's nothing around him to, to put it in context with the Casper Friedrich. Yes, the characters look lonely, but in this landscape that is somehow resonating with them. So no, I, I completely agree with you. I'm just interested in what you say about being German, though, because I didn't know if Brian found this. Every country I've looked at, you know, I've got Portuguese friends who go, oh, melancholy's a particular Portuguese thing. <laughs> and they talk about Fado and so on. And the Irish, I, did you read Bishop Barclay and whatever it was? And the Irish, we're like butter. We just sort of, we're so sensitive, we just melt. Every single one, you say something. Well, um, I'd say, I'd say, the French won't say that. Oh, <laughs> that, is, that is an interesting one. Um, well, what goes along with yeah, what goes along with that is a particular set of worries about specific parts of the body or specific systems mm-hmm. within the body, right? So, so the French, the French are worried about their livers, mm-hmm. um, the Germans are worried about their hearts and, and their bowels. The British are deeply concerned with their bowels. I'm very interested. Also, I don't have a, um, an art background. But I recall years ago being struck very much by a photograph of a woman who'd had a single mastectomy and a very dynamic um, tattoo, I think it was a snake or a serpent, across this site. And I would like the panel to comment on art celebrating the body with or despite 
illness as more of us are living longer with a range of health problems that, that we may encounter. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, there. Uh, oh, crikey, there is a woman who was vilified in the seventies. Brian's going to give me her name in a minute because it's escaped me. Uh, and she was she she was vilified for uh, showing photographs of her beautiful body. It was supposed to be you know a feminist gesture, but everyone was saying that she was perpetuating the idea of the idealized body. And then she became ill. Uh, in the 90s uh, with terminal cancer I think lymphomatic cancer and she replicated the series of photographs but in the hospital context throughout the last days and and weeks of of her life so she sort of retrieved herself from from previous um, vilification what's her name? I've totally forgotten (laughs) I know exactly I will get it any second now it's got a C in it Um, who sorry? Uh, she was American. Yeah. yeah. It, it will come to me. It's in my book, which might be outside. <laughs> 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 uh, but but yeah, there there are many artists. There's a, a an artist called um, Melanie Mancho, a German artist, who photographs her mother, who is uh, in her sixties, photographs her topless against mountains. Uh, so just posing the. The, the supposed sort of ageing body that should be kept under clothes, apparently, uh, against the, the timelessness of, of geology, and there, yeah, there is there is a trope of uncovering that which supposedly should be covered. Brian, do you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I suppose, again, partly about Warhol and and one of the sort of greatnesses um, of Warhol's last decade was, was this kind of sense. The, earlier on in his career he always had this, um, this notion that he could foreground the failing of his failures of his body, so his boldness, <coughs> his, his pallor, his general kind of weakness. And so he, in his writings he's always talking about, you know, if you, if you, make, if you wear a grey wig then everybody will think that you're staying the same as you get older. You know, if you, if you dress older you'll, you'll always be the same because people will think, my God, Andy's looking so, so spry these days. And that's purely because he looked exactly the same for 20 years. But there's, there's a really interesting then moment in the, in the, in the 80s with, with Warhol where he turns, he's still desperately worried about now his ageing as well as uh, unwell and as he sees it, ugly body. But he starts to turn that into a kind of grotesque. So all the, the great self-portraits with skulls, for example. Um, and that, so the, what's, what Sally's describing um, is... I think fascinating in, in, in a lot of con- contemporary work. There's also a self-serving and grotesque version of it, which I think is is Warhol's. You know, which is 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 on the one hand, yes, it's celebrating it's celebrating something, but actually, it's also at the same time kind of entirely egotistical and twisted. I suppose I kind of want to say that, in some sense, the interesting version of what you're describing would have to also be one that is at some level kind of selfish and morbid and not healthy. I suppose what I'm resisting, in a sense I'm resisting it kind of following on from the the previous question as well, is the idea that a full representation of the failing of the body, be it through illness or age or so so forth, would necessarily itself be a healthy one. I'm kind of in in favour of of the the unhealthy as it were. (laughs) 
I, so I would be. I've just written a book about hypochondria. But if, if you see what I mean, I'd, I kind of want. I, I would still want an element um, that. I, in other words, I don't think what you're describing would in itself be aesthetically good simply because it was ethically good. I'd want to find the kind of dirt somewhere in it. Okay, and then I still think, please. There'll be a question at the end of this, but it might begin as if it's a monologue. But I, I have to admit, I came here by accident today because I'm <laughs> something else. But I, I saw this, The Arts of Illness, and I thought, it sounds fantastically interesting. I'm a writer, and I've had an illness for 19 years. And this illness wasn't recognised until just a few years ago. So until a few years ago, you not only had a chronic illness that you had to cope with, everybody, you know, lots of people called you a hypochondriac. So I find it a really interesting subject. Uh, how do you work when everybody calls you a hypochondriac but you know that you're an artist and you're, you've, got a, you've got an illness and you're trying to work through it? Now, one thing I learned as a writer trying to write about this and explain it and express it was that we still have in our so-called civilized societies an incredibly primitive view of the human body and health and how we retain our health. We basically, not everybody, but all the medical sciences are split on this idea of whether we're a ghost in the machine, you know, whether we're just kind of an anatomical machine, or whether we're something much more complex and subtle. Now, when I came to this, I thought a lot of the talk would be around this kind of dichotomy. But it's almost like, I've heard some very interesting things said, but it's almost like a lot of the attitude of the people you've been talking about seems to be almost frivolous. And your attitude towards them always seems to be quite light-hearted and frivolous. But to me, it's a live and essentially serious issue. Somebody in my community recently just got off the jail sentence <coughs> because she helped her daughter with the same illness I've got to an assisted suicide. Because after 16 years, she couldn't cope with it any longer. These are the things that artists should be addressing. This, this problem that we have in society of still not thinking about what illness is and actually reifying people who are ill by calling them hypochondriacs. So my question to you is, have you thought through some of those issues? And what's your, what's your view of that? Okay, I guess that's for me to, to start off. Um, I, one of the things that I think we've been trying to do this afternoon is to talk about, as it were, almost a, a kind of constellation of, of cultural uh, products and, and lines of thought and inquiry and so on that, that surround the experience of illness or the idea of illness, or in the case of my, my talk and my book, um, a notion of uh, imaginary illness. Now, one of the things that I think is, is fascinating in terms of uh, the history of so-called imaginary illness is precisely the confusion, the moment where it turns out that what was supposedly imaginary is actually absolutely real. Um, and in some cases in the, in the book, notably Charles Darwin and Florence Nightingale, they, they were actually suffering from, from real illnesses that were it, to some degree misdiagnosed as, as hypochondriacal. But the core question, um, the, the, the core kind of issue in, in what you're asking, um, is, I think, absolutely central to what all three of us have been talking about, because it has to do exactly with um, the question of how we relate to our bodies at a moment historically when supposedly 
medical science is able to, to intervene at very precise um, uh, and, and, and minute levels. And at the same time, we supposedly have developed psychological ways of dealing with illness that actually, one of the things my book tries to argue, um, are not <coughs> adequate. And, and those have to do, for example, um, with, a with the a an attitude to illness, whether it be organic or psychological, um, an attitude to illness that says that we can somehow cure um, our emotional response to our own illness. We can make ourselves, in other words, easier citizens, better citizens to be around, although we are also ill. And one of the things that really interests me is the idea um, that th there's a great concept which has been advanced by a philosopher, um, Israeli philosopher working here in, in Britain called Javi Karel. Um, and it's a concept of what she calls health within illness, which is in a sense almost kind of opposite of hypochondria. She's, she's trying to, to argue for, um, at very practical levels, and particularly in the, in, in the NHS, a way of thinking about people's physical illness that allows them to be, to function as full citizens and, and individuals, as part of a, part of a society, um, in a way that simply isn't happening at the moment because people are being consigned simply to, to this other category, this category of the ill, which is somehow cut off um, from, from, from the rest of, uh, of society. So one way to begin to answer your, your question, um, I think, um, is that all, all of this conversation about, um, about, as it were, the cultural versions of illness, um, melancholia, body art, hypochondria, at the core of this actually is a thinking about how we pursue our lives and our cultural being, our, our being as social beings, in light of actual real physical suffering. Um, and I think that there is much thinking going on about this, both in uh, the arts, vi literature, visual art, and, and amongst philosophers and other social thinkers. So I don't think, I, I hope that we're not trivialising the core experiences that we're, that we're describing here. I think we're trying to as it were, expand the remit, expand the sense uh, of, 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 that, of those issues kind of having links with the rest of culture, really, with the rest of society. There was one more question down here, just quickly, I think. Uh, we did start a few minutes late, so if people don't mind, just sort of two minutes. Thank you. I think it actually relates a bit with the previous question because um, I was curious maybe in the end tying things up together with uh, uh, what, what is happening now and what has happened a few centuries ago when people were called either hypochondriac or melancholic. Do artists today, do you think, identify or could identify with these or the definitions that existed about hypochondria or melancholy and the way they changed or are, they other, are there other labels and how do artists actually engage with them and this was actually the, the question the previous question. So we had a person uh, actually from the position of an artist answering in a way this question. So that was it, like a final link between these labels and what, what's happening today in modern art. Okay, I think uh, the, the art that I showed, a lot of it wouldn't be operating under those sorts of labels. It's art that is very much looking at a socio-political context within which it finds itself and which it produces and <coughs> which produces it. And these artists would probably you know, consider art to have perhaps some sort of almost pedagogical remit rather than being expressive in that way. P 
pedagogical and slightly too strong because artists wouldn't like to be called that or didactic or anything like that, but there is very much a, a looking out to the world and society rather than in, inwards to the, you know, the, the sensitised core. I suppose I, I thought perhaps we would have discussed more about, um, well, you might have raised the question of the connection between creativity and these various bodily diseases. Um, and just to say that we think we both think it, it holds good. Perhaps we, the labels we might use are different. Um, we don't have time now to do this, but you know, I might not use hypochondria, mm. you might. Um, but I, I again just return to the point that I think. Um, we didn't talk about the humours, you, you remember. Um, and what I loved with an art historian who wrote uh, on this Paris exhibition, a woman called Noga Araka, said, well, we understand the humours, the medieval humours. Um, it was an imbalance in our, you know, bile and whatever. What's the difference between that and an imbalance in our serotonin levels? Do we really know? And I thought it was such a good point. You know, aren't we, we still think it's something a bit weird. And Anyway, I'll leave it there. Um, I think it, it's a really interesting question. One of the things that I'm interested in um, with, um, with hypochondria, but, but also in a much wider sense with, with the history of melancholia, is the idea of recapturing um, these somewhat forgotten categories. Melancholia is, 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 in, is, in, is in no way quite as obscure as, as this earlier sense of hypochondria. Now everybody thinks they know what they, you know, they don't want to be accused of being hypochondriacal. Um, in the 19th century, it wasn't exactly something to be proud of, but it has a more expansive sense, and I'm quite interested in what happens when you go, you, when you try to rescue these disparaged cultural categories, because actually it turns out that to some degree the mid-19th century or the early 17th century with Burton has a considerably more expansive and in some sense more humane sense of what it would mean to be psychologically or physically unwell. Um, and that, that seems to me quite interesting, rather, rather than, than, than being facile or trivial about um, the past, the, 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 our ancestors' somewhat silly notions of how the body worked. Well, what happens if you go back and, and figure out what that meant at a conceptual and experiential level? It actually meant something weirdly, strangely productive and, and useful. On that note, I think we need to finish. Thanks to all of you for coming, and thanks very much to our three speakers.